I'm Cynthia Murphy. Hi, I'm Georgie Bowers. <laughs> and this is Delete My Browser History. Welcome back. We were saying last episode was all a bit of a rush at the end, but there's not much information on La Pasqualita. If you Google her, you'll pretty much come up with what I came up with. We don't know why he put her in the window, but you know. No, there's a lot. I think that's definitely why it's classed as a bit of folklore. Yeah, anything to do with dummies and, and stuff like that is just very... So creepy. Yeah. yeah, my favourite murder say um, it's never a mannequin. You know, when people find a dead body and they go, "I thought it was a mannequin," and they go, "It's never a mannequin." <laughs> Did you hear about that guy who was stopped on the motorway by the police because people had been calling saying that someone had a body rolled up in a rug in the back of their car? No, was that and- recent? It was recent, yeah, and they pulled him over and he was like, he was on his way to a first aid course and it was like, <laughs> it was one of those dummies that he'd practice on. Maybe don't roll it up in a rug next time. Yeah, definitely. Maybe. Maybe. Something you can probably put in the boot, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So what have you got for us? So I'm talking about two things today, but they kind of slot together. I'm talking about tarot cards and Ouija boards. Ooh. I was excited about this. The reason I picked them is because they're both in Last One to Die. And I put them together because they both actually originated as parlor games. So I'm going to dive a little bit into the history of them and where they actually came from. So I'm going to start with tarot. Tarot cards have been used in Europe since around the mid 15th century. And they're loosely based on a game called Italian Tarocini which is a complex trick-taking tarot game. It's still popular in Bologna and it's confined mostly to that area now. So you can still go and play this game in Bologna. But there was also French tarot, which was a strategy game, which would be played by three to five people. And that is still the second most popular game in France. And it's played in French-speaking Canada. And then I'm going to mess this pronunciation up, but you've got Austrian Conny Grufen, um, which is right all the king in German. And that's a four player trick taking game. So tarot, as we know it, has derived from all these games. Some tarot decks were then used for divination from about the 18th century and something called cartomancy, which is kind of reading the future based on the cards. And this led to custom decks being made for occult purposes. We like an occult purpose. Of course. The oldest surviving tarot cards are the Visconti Sforza tarot decks. These were painted in the mid-15th century for the rulers of the Duchy of Milan. Um, And it's a collective term. So there was about 15 sets and there's like bits and pieces of these sets left. So they're all kind of put together under that term of the Visconti Sforza tarot deck. Um, They're now in various museums, libraries and private collections around the world, such as the Morgan Library and Museum in New York, which has 35 of them. So the etymology, tarot comes from the Italian tarocci. The origin's uncertain, but tarot was used as a synonym for foolishness in the late 15th and early 16th century. So I don't know if it's a bit of a, if you believe this, you're a bit of a a fool kind of thing. Mm. Um, The earliest evidence of tarot being used for cartomancy is from an anonymous manuscript in 1750. And that documents the divine meanings of those cards 
for the Bolognese Tarocco. So the the cards that were like famous in Bologna, somebody kind of ascribed different meanings to them all, saying, if you get this card, this is what it means for your future. So a bit more like we would think of tarot cards now. So a deck called the Atelier was the first deck that was specifically made for occult purposes and that was around 1789 and the themes in that related to ancient Egypt so it's unsubstantiated but some people believe that the cards actually come from ancient Egypt from the book of Thoth and that's where they drew this inspiration from. Alistair Crowley who the lovely Dawn mentioned in her Mm -hmm. demonology episode he devised part of the Egyptian inspired deck and I'll talk about him in a second, but you've got three common decks now that kind of exist around the world. So you've got the Tarot of Marseille, which is quite a common one when you, you know, when you see the um, the kind of happy sun with, mm-hmm. with flames around its head, that kind of famous tarot image that comes from the Tarot of Marseille. You've got the Rider Waite Smith Tarot deck, which I'm going to talk about in more detail. And you've got the Thoth tarot deck, which was devised by Alistair Crowley, and it's based on that tenuous Egyptian link. There's loads of variations of that now. I'm not going to tell you the rules relating to them because they're really boring. (laughs) When I looked up, you can go on Wikipedia and it, it lists all sorts of stuff, but it's quite boring to go into. So I thought I would have a look at the Rider Waite Smith deck because most decks that you will buy now with all different illustrations on, they're actually based on this deck. So according to Atlas Obscura, the Rider Waite Smith deck was first brought to life by a guy called Arthur Edward Waite. He was born in Brooklyn in 1857. His mum was English and his dad was American and they eventually returned to the UK when he was two years old. He became interested in the occult when his sister died at a young age in 1874. Mm -hmm. So I think he became a little bit obsessed with trying to contact people who'd passed on. He was in things like the Freemasons and he ended up becoming the enemy of Aleister Crowley. So they were actually in like a little thing together and Arthur eventually broke off and did his own thing and Alistair didn't like it very much so they had lots of the same ideas but they were basically you know fighting for who was the big dog so he became interested in his own version of the tarot when he went to the British Museum in 1908 and they they had some black and white pictures of a 15th century set of tarot cards it was the solar busca deck and that would prove inspirational to him And the next person I'm going to talk about. Now, this woman that I'm going to talk about just sounds amazing and a complete badass. And she has been completely erased from history, from as far as what I could see. You can find stuff about her, but she is so cool. I don't know why there's not more about her. And her name is Pamela Coleman-Smith. Now, the Rider Waite-Smith deck has her name in it now. For a long time, it was just known as the Rider Waite deck because it was named after the men. Anyway. Shock horror. I know. Her nickname was Pixie. She was an artist and she actually found out she lived in Manchester until she was 10, which I thought was a really cool fact. She was born in London. Wikipedia didn't have a date for her, but I found out she was born in 1878. Her dad was American and her mum was Jamaican. She travelled a lot as a child and she studied art at the Pratt Institute in New York. 
So even though she was a mixed race woman in the kind of late 1800s, it sounded like her family were probably quite well off and she got mm. to do a lot of traveling and she was she was quite privileged. She didn't get a degree in the end, but she studied art and she went on to become a commercial illustrator in London. She illustrated Bram Stoker's last ever published work. <gasps> wow. Yeah, which is called The Lair of the White Worm. And that was in 1911. Her art was colourful and unique. She published books on Jamaican folklore. I've written in brackets, she's a badass. And <laughs> she was known to have a second sight. So when you see a picture of Pamela, she is everything that you want her to be. She is this witchy kind of mixed race lady with fabulous hair. And, you know, she she looks like this arty kind of witchy woman. And, oh, she just, she looks like someone I want to be friends with. So apparently she painted pictures based on visions that she'd had. And she would do it all while listening to music. So you could just imagine that. And she met Arthur Edward Waite in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. So that's something that Alistair Crowley was part of. So when he left, she left with him. He commissioned her to illustrate a new tarot deck. Within six months, she had illustrated the whole thing and they were primarily used for divination. So all of the images are packed with meaning. So when you look up the original deck, every single picture that she's done has got a lot of meaning in there. It was published by the Rider Company in 1909 and known as the Rider Weight Deck, which completely erased her, considering she's the one who drew them all. But it's now known as the Rider Weight Smith Deck. His obituary didn't mention them, apparently, according to Wikipedia. So even though his name is on them, it wasn't something that was mentioned after he died. And she did not have an obituary, even though she was awesome. Since they were incepted, they have never gone out of print. So there's always been some kind of version of this deck in print since 1908, which is crazy. Yeah, that's... Yeah. I was just having a look to see if I could get different images of the decks. And there is actually, on Atlas Obscura events, there is an event in August this year. And it's like a Zoom event. And it's with the museum in New York that I mentioned and they're going to show the Visconti Sforza deck. So they're going to actually show these 15th century cards. So oh, I can wow. put a link on for that. I'm not sure if it's paid or not, but it would be quite a cool thing to yeah. if you're interested in tarot. I did not know that I really didn't know any of that about tarot cards because you just hear tarot cards and you think, yeah, tarot cards. I know all about those. I didn't know that there was like these different types and that they all originated from these, you know, particular people and yeah and it makes you wonder like are they so when people use them do they have any meaning or is it the person putting their meaning onto it or are they magical or you know people still play with them in Europe as like yeah yeah wow so it takes me nicely onto Ouija boards because again it's something that started as a game so a Ouija board is also known as a spirit board or a talking board and in case you're not familiar with what they look like they're normally a flat board they're usually rectangular they've got an alphabet that kind of goes in a curve from A to Z they've got the numbers one to nine or maybe zero to nine Um, And they've got yes, no, and goodbye on there as well. You need to use a planchette, which is a heart-shaped piece of wood or plastic. And you put your hand on the planchette and it moves around and it spells out messages. The term Ouija is actually a trademark of Hasbro. Um, (laughs) 
but it is used as a generic term for kind of any kind of talking or spirit board. So there's a little bit with the etymology, there was a misconception. Uh, It used to be believed that Ouija was from French, yes, and German, and it was mashed Mm. together. So it was French and German, yes. But it's actually taken from a guy who, he wasn't the inventor, but he's the guy who claimed to be the inventor. He asked the board what its name was, and that's what it spelled out. Oh. So it named itself. It's a good name, though, isn't it? It is a good name. And yeah. I understand, I get that Ouija, the French-German thing, because it, it does yeah. sound a bit French. However, there are lots of precursors to the Ouija board. So automatic writing in China in 1100 AD, according to some historical documents. So apparently in the Song Dynasty, they did a thing called Fuji, which meant planchette writing. And it was a type of way for spirits to speak to them or people to speak through them. And then talking boards were used a lot in the US Civil War, which we've talked about before. People became kind of obsessed with death because it was so common and they would use it to contact dead relatives. So there was all these different little precursors. And in 1901, a businessman called Elijah Bond decided he would paint his own board. So he printed a board and a planchette and he took it to the patent office. He got one, so he businessified it, basically. <laughs> Is that word, businessified? I think so. Um, and his employee, William Fuld, took over the production. William Fuld was the one who was told what the Ouija board was called. It was produced by Charles Kennard of Kennard Novelty Company. And Fuld, the employee, actually claimed it as his own invention. So I'm not quite sure what happened to the original guy, but it kind of went under Fuld's name for ages. And soon it became so popular that competitors started putting out their own boards as well, and they flooded the market. Wow. Smithsonian Mag talks about the adverts that you would get in the newspapers at the time. So they would have things like Ouija, the wonderful talking board, $1.50. And I found an old ad that I can put on the Instagram. So does it work? Does it not? Because it's something that was kind of made and branded and, and sold as a toy. So you've got some scientists who believe that it does work, but it's an unconscious muscular exertion. It draws on the unconscious mind of the person using it. So the planchette does move seemingly on its own, but your subconscious mind is is moving it round. And it's been described as a con to part fools from their money. (laughs) In religious terms, Christians absolutely hate them. (laughs) They are blamed for demons, witchcraft. They've been burned numerous times. I found in New Mexico, they burned them alongside some Harry Potter books in 2001. They believe, so Christians believe that this is information that is only for God's hands. So putting it into the hands of humans is a tool of Satan. And it's Satan trying to kind of mess things up. In history and in the media, you've got Alistair Crowley again. He used one. Apparently he was going to make his own version, but then couldn't be bothered. It never happened. There's one used in The Exorcist. Regan, the girl who becomes uh, possessed, uses one and talks to Captain Howdy, who ends up being a demon. You've got the paranormal activity films. Apparently, they use a Ouija board in them and it makes the, the entity even worse. There's a film called Ouija from 2007, where a murderous spirit follows the kids who use it around. There's a similar film of the same name from 2014 as well. And this fun fact that I found out afterwards, Fold, so the guy who said he had created it and who asked the Ouija board what its name was, 
He died in 1927 after a freak fall from the roof of a new factory that the Ouija board had told him to build. Oh, gosh. He really, he he should not have listened to that Ouija board. No, but it just made you wonder, doesn't it? So was the Ouija board like controlling him or something? Yeah. And then I had a look for Ouija boards that you can buy now. And my favourite was from a shop on Etsy called The Living Plastic Store. And it's a Barbie Ouija. And instead of yes, no and goodbye, it says totally yes. Totally no, and bye for now. <laughs> and it's hot pink. <laughs> of course. So there we go. Two, wow. two kind of spooky spiritual things that actually started off as party games. Yeah, I was going to say that's really interesting because you talk about like, you know, can kind of get on board with uh, tarot cards, just let someone else do their thing with it. Yeah. Uh, but Ouija boards, if you'd like, if I was somewhere and everyone was like, let's do a Ouija, I would be like, I am leaving. So yeah. it's really funny to think that it like it's, it's just the trade name, the game that Hasbro bought yeah. out. This is it. And I mean, there was like, um, oh, okay. Yeah. What's happened? It just said you have changed to earphones and I hadn't, but there we go. I have now. (laughs) Weird. 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 Well, this is it. Maybe, maybe the Ouija's telling me to stop talking about it. Um, It's funny that it it just started off as a game. You know, that would have been, let's make this game. And now people just, you know, people use them all the time, don't they, to contact the dead. And believe that they can contact yeah. the dead. And I mean, growing up as a Christian, I was terrified of them. And even though now I know the history behind it and that it's a game, I'm still not doing one. No way. No way. <laughs> no, thank you. Put that board away. Yeah. Definitely. There you go. Right. What have you got to tell me about this week? Lovely. Well, I am going to talk to you about Bella in the Witch Elm. Oh, yes. Okay. Have you heard about her? I have. I've heard a couple of podcasts talk about her before. Yeah. So I came across Bella. Uh, it was in the, she was in the 40 and time. She was on the front page and I had not, I'd not heard of her. Obviously it's a really interesting story and obviously really spoke to me. And there was a, there's a scene in Mark of the Wicked where they find a dead body in a tree, but not in the tree trunk, in the branches. So I've just pulled together because you can, she is, as you said, there's a couple of podcasts. There's also a documentary on Amazon Prime, which I've been told is quite good. It's only a short oh, one. Okay. Uh, so I haven't watched it yet, but um, it has been recommended. But you can find, there's all sorts of places on the internet you can read about this. So the story of Bella in the Witch Elm. At dusk in April 1943, four teenage boys were going through Hagley Woods. Now, Hagley Woods had a reputation for, like, maybe it was haunted or the occult or something. I've tried to find like what the reputation was, but I can't find anything. It all just refers to what we're about to talk about. So whether it really was haunted, I don't know. But they were hoping to do a bit of um, poaching, poaching some rabbits, because obviously it was during the war and rationing was going on and stuff. So they spotted the tree, the witch elm, and decided to climb up into it to see if they could find some eggs, possibly. And one of them climbed up and he peeked down inside the trunk, the hollow trunk, and saw there was something white. And so he was like, oh, jackpot, reached in. Oh, yeah. And it was a human skull. At first he thought it was an 
animal skull and then he realized it had bits of hair and like human teeth in it so obviously they all completely freaked out and ran home and said that they would never tell anybody about it because they thought they'd get in trouble but one of them did tell their parent and the police were called and obviously went to the area and soon said that you know that there was a crime to be investigated the police found the skeleton, the remains of this person in the, in the tree trunk. It was a woman and her hand had been removed and her hand, the bones of her hand were scattered around the tree. She was wearing a ring. On the outside of the tree or the inside? Out, not, not inside, on the outside. She oh. was wearing a ring and her shoes were also found a, a distance away. So they found her shoes as well. But also there was a piece of taffeta fabric inside her mouth. So, and they think that she was suffocated. So the medical examiner, he concluded that she was about 35 years old. She had really irregular teeth on her upper jaw. Her teeth really like protruded. She had light brown hair. She was five foot tall. So she was only small. And like I said, they reckon that she'd been there for about 18 months. Um, He also said that based on, you know, the autopsy or what have you, she'd given birth at least once in her life. So she was, yeah, so it's just really sad, this poor woman. But he was certain it was murder. He said there's no way that anybody could, like commit suicide by crawling into inside a tree trunk and and dying that way and he said he thought that she was murdered and then very quickly put inside the trunk because it would have been impossible with the rigor mortis to kind of ease her into it so he said that she was murdered quite near the tree and and put inside and he said this is what he said it was an excellent place for the concealment of a murder and I think it indicates local knowledge so he reckoned it was somebody who was who was yeah I was gonna say that because how would you know a tree was hollow yeah it's something that you know or you don't isn't it so to then yeah Mm. yeah it's weird so so following this discovery, the police contacted every dentist in the area, but they, no one had any records of this woman. And they also went through their missing missing persons file. But again, she didn't show up in there. But obviously it was all everybody was talking about. But then after a little while, people just sort of forgot about it because the war, you know, the war was still going on and and, and people were, were talking about other things and distracted by other things. So yeah. this poor woman was sort of forgotten about really until... Until about six months later, graffiti started appearing in the area. Now, the first bit of graffiti, which was written in chalk on the side of a house, said, who put Lubella down the witch elm? Yeah. So they referred to her as Lubella in that first one. But then over the coming months, similar messages started appearing. They all seem to be written in the same hand, although I have I have seen pictures and I'm like, I'm not sure whether they're the same handwriting, but yeah. um, gradually they took the same form and they and it, and it said they all said, who put Bella in the witch elm? And this just kept appearing all over the area. Who so called her Bella? The person, the person who wrote, did the graffiti. So it seemed that, or they'd given the name Bella to her. They didn't have a name for her before that. Mm -hmm. So there's all these theories about who she was and how she got there. So one of the theories is, of course, it was a black magic ritual. According to an anthropologist called Professor Margaret Murray, the fact that Bella's hand was severed at her arm and the bones were scattered is similar to an occult ceremony known as the Hand of Glory. Okay. Look. I've looked up the Hand of Glory only on Wikipedia and it says that the Hand of Glory is the dried and pickled hand of a hanged man. Yeah, because it's um, it's it's an old folklore, isn't it? That like you... And then you can carry it around with a candle in it. 
Yeah. And it's like, it repels people. It's meant to light that. Yeah. It's meant to help you get away with like dastardly deeds, basically. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that does sound like the same thing at all because her hand was like removed and then scattered everywhere. So yeah. but I think they just they just liked the, you know, makes it sound a bit more interesting. And because it was noted that the plant Belladonna, Deadly Nightshade and Witch Hazel are both widely associated with the occult. And like I said, Hagley Woods was. And the fact that she was entombed inside the tree instead of being buried is also ritualist is, is like indicative of ritualistic slaying and also, there was another um, murder nearby, I think, where somebody, I think he was a farmer, was found pinned to the ground with his pitchfork. Ooh. Um, and they reckoned that that was also a cultish, as you would, I suppose. So there was that theory. And then later on, the Wolverhampton Express and Star received a letter from somebody who claimed to have information about the identity of Bella, saying that she was a member of a spy ring seeking information about the location of local munitions factories that could be targeted by Luftwaffe's. So right. with the timing, I think that was something that obviously spoke to people. This, yeah, definitely. This lady who wrote into the newspaper, she was later identified as someone called Una Mossop. And she said that her RAF pilot husband, Jack Mossop, had witnessed Bella's death. And she said that Mossop told her that he'd become involved in a spy ring along with a Dutchman called Van Rout. And one evening they took Bella, they picked Mossop up in his car. And then shortly after this Dutch fella, the Dutchman, he strangled her. Oh. And then they, yeah, because of her by association. So they put her in the tree. But why the taffeta and, and stuff? So I'm not sure about that one. And then there was some declassified MI5 files that again supported this spy theory about Ooh. the chap called he was a German spy called Joseph Jacobs and he was captured after breaking his ankle when he parachuted into Cambridgeshire in 1941 and he had a creased photograph of a glamorous German actress and cabaret singer called Clara Borel so Clara Bella Borel but no Borel he told his interrogators that she was his lover and that the Third Reich had recruited her as a spy according to him she had parachuted into the West Midlands and she disappeared so could that be her people again were quite excited about this theory the idea of an actress and cabaret singer being a spy but she was five foot ten so she was too tall because oh, way foot. too tall yeah yeah um and apparently she there's record to say that she, she died she was already dead i think in a berlin hospital so there was that theory sort of gone out the window and then there was a radio bbc radio 4 did a program and they suggested that bella was a prostitute who worked in the area and she disappeared this according to police files bella had disappeared in 1941 which would kind of fit the timeline of events but she didn't appear on the missing persons i don't know um, probably not no I think with a lot uh, of like sex work it, yeah. it was just seen as you were asking for trouble and I mean yeah. it's still seen like that now isn't it it's, it's yeah yeah and it, it's imagine. just it's so sad that she's just people still don't really know who she is but they just I mean the hypothesis that people seem to go with now that she was just a homeless woman with no loved ones to report her missing and she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time and I mean I the thing that gets me is the hand why was her hand removed and then the bones scattered but then they said it might have been animals that had done that had someone yeah that's true 
then were like, here, we'll get you out again. And she gave them her hand and they were like, ha ha, no, you're staying in there and cut her hand off. And then she just sort of, because I, I guess in those days, how much information would they have been able to extract from doing the post-mortem? Yeah. And how well was it done if it was just yeah. somebody who was assumed to be a sex worker with no family? Like, did yeah. they even bother? Or if it was seen to be a spy thing, yep. you know, was it yeah. all kept very on the Cover down low? Yeah. Um, so they recent, well, not recently, a few years ago, they were able to reconstruct what her face would have looked like from the human skull that they'd found. So I'll send you the link because you can see what they think she looked like. And oh, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, surely now, like if they've still got bones and stuff, they could use ancestral dna every now and again apparently the that graffiti pops up again in the local area obviously it's not the same person doing it but as you say you know what they have to hand now to sort of learn more about a person Mm. but she's the photo the photo of her is such a close-up because i was looking at it on my ipad and i sort of opened it up and then scrolled down and like her face just took up the whole of the screen and i was like she's going to smile or blink or something <laughs> it was really it was really eerie but poor bella in the witch elm oh it's one of those isn't it that will never get solved no you know unless somebody does take the time to try and trace like a family member and then trace it back yeah i like the spy theory because i think it it is very of the time yeah isn't it it does seem ritualistic the you know the the hand removing the hand and also like the taffeta in her mouth and why were her shoes i mean did her shoes come off in a struggle but they reckon she'd been there for 18 months so why wasn't she found before? And if mm. these lads, it was obviously a place that they went to a lot because there wasn't much to do around that time, was there? And, yeah. and I don't know. It's a mystery. Very oh, sad. Very interesting. Yes. Yeah. So that's Bella in the Witch Elm. I wonder if we'll ever find out. Maybe. There might. Yeah, I might watch this documentary, I think, see if there's any other hypotheses. Yeah. Oh, thank you. So that was um that was for Mark of the Wicked, wasn't it? Kind of. Yeah, where they find a body in the tree, just like the idea of it really. But you've got someone in the witching well as well, haven't you? Did that not? Yeah, that was I just loved I loved the um who put Bella in the witch elm. I thought it's got such a lovely ring to it. Yeah. And so I had Ivy down the witching well. Yeah. Yeah, Ivy down the witching well, who was a witch who got thrown down a well and died down there. Poor Ivy. Yeah, but they all carried on throwing their trinkets and things down the well to try and get her to do her magic for them. I wonder if, is there anything at that tree? Does that tree still exist? No, the tree's not there anymore. But you can, I'll send you you some links because you can see the, um, like the photographs and stuff that the police took and they're like little notes, like where she was found and everything. You can see a picture of her skull. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. (laughs) you like looking at skulls (laughs) right well thank you very much thank you we'll see you next time see you next week bye bye browser history deleted